Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning, and uh, I'd like to thank uh, those who have already begun to step in and help us with uh, dealing with our project, with our emergency last night. Uh, many, many folks have already been involved in dealing with the consequences and uh, being flexible in terms of what we need to do this morning, so thank you. Let's look to God again in prayer. God, we do come in praise for who you are, for your faithfulness, your steadfastness, your love, and your mercy, which never change. God, would you meet us in our frailty and fickleness and help us to stay true to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday we began a new series here at Bethany, a series looking at what we're calling but God moments in Scripture. Moments where things have been going in a certain direction, but God acted and intervened in such a way that that they took a turn, there were turning points hinge moments. In Scripture, in the Old and New Testament, we find over 60 of these but God statements that always signal that God's about to do something with consequence. And in the weeks ahead, we'll be exploring a few of these moments together. Last week, we were introduced or reintroduced to the character of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph, the favorite son of his father Jacob, and a tattletale, and a bragger. So he saw that, not surprisingly, he became the very least brother among the 12 sons of Jacob, and in fact became so hated that when his brothers had the opportunity, they sold him into slavery as a caravan of traders passed through in a remote place. We saw that Joseph ended up being sold into the household of Pharaoh's captain of the guard, that he was then wrongly imprisoned and then elevated to a position of power in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh's. It's a story full of turning points. And as Joseph rises to power, he gives God all the credit for the things that God is doing through him, such as the ability to interpret dreams. He tells Pharaoh, I can't do this, but God can. Joseph predicted an upcoming famine in the land and devised a plan to prepare for it. We read in Genesis 41 that the seven years of of bumper crops and bountiful provision that Joseph had predicted indeed came to fruition. And we saw that Joseph himself managed those strong crops and harvests so that they had a surplus at the end. And so Egypt alone within that whole Middle Eastern region was well prepared to weather the following seven years of drought and famine. They were the only ones able to sell and provide grain not only to their own people, but to those from the lands beyond their borders as well. So let's pick up the story at the beginning of Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I love that line. It's like, come on. He said, I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin 
Joseph's brother with the others because he was afraid harm might come to him. Benjamin, we learn, is the second favorite. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the whole land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And if you go on to, to read, we see the Genesis chapters 42 through 49 reveal the fascinating and dramatic story of the slow and eventual revealing by Joseph of his true identity to his brothers. We see that Joseph's whole family is relocated from Canaan into Egypt where Joseph cares for them and where they are warmly welcomed by Pharaoh himself. We see that Joseph's continued excellence and shrewdness and leadership in the land allows for the continual thriving of Egypt's fortunes. And we see in these chapters that Joseph's acceptance of and deep forgiveness of his brothers is deeply poignant. He assures them, don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me. It was God who sent me here ahead of you so that your lives might be saved. Chapter 49 concludes with the death of their father Jacob and Egypt. And in chapter 50, we read that after burying his father in Canaan, as Jacob had asked, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Maybe because his brothers still didn't understand his love for them may be pained because they still lied to his face. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid, I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So once again, even though dad's not there to watch over them, Joseph freely and fully forgives his brothers. Even when they've seemed to come up with yet another lie to try to protect themselves, Joseph reassures them. He speaks kindly to them. He lavishes them with mercy. He wants to convince them that they just didn't understand what was really going on. They just didn't see the bigger picture. That even though they had intended harm, 
and had done everything they could in their power to inflict it on Joseph, God actually intended good through those very same twists and turns. God's intentions ended up being a blessing to Joseph, to thousands, probably millions of people in those lands. The very act that they inflicted upon Joseph, he says, ended up saving their own lives because of a but God moment. Joseph points to God as a God of good intentions. Now, a lot of times when we say that someone has good intentions, uh, it's a mix of, of praise and put down. We can say, well, we can say, well they, they intended well, which usually means, yeah, they meant well, but things didn't turn out so great. They meant well, but they didn't really have the wherewithal to pull off what they were trying. They meant well, they intended well, but somehow along the line, things went off the rails. That's not what Joseph is talking about here. Joseph is saying that God intended good, and that exact intended good came fully to pass. He said, you sold me into slavery, hoping to get rid of me once and for all. But now here I am before you. God connected the dots between that pit you threw me into, the slave chain you sold me into, Potiphar's household, Pharaoh's courts, and where we find ourselves today. What an example of a broad view of the world and a deep faith in the true abiding goodness and mercy of God. Joseph portrays God as being omnipotent, so all-powerful that God is somehow able to accomplish his good intentions, even through the intended malicious acts of people. It's a trust that Joseph demonstrates in the redemptive power of God, the good plans of God. And we see in his treatment of his brothers and in his interpretation of the events that had befallen them, rich evidence of Joseph's spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. We see that Joseph is spiritually mature enough not to put a box around how God might choose to act, not to put a box around what God might do to fulfill God's good intentions. Joseph presumes that God is actively at work to bring about good for those people he calls to follow him. He assumes that's the case, and so he goes looking for evidence to see how that's going to unfold, even if that evidence turns up in very unexpected places. He's not looking for God to prove himself. Instead, Joseph is able to see the thread of God's well-established and already proven goodness woven through all the threads of the events of his life. Joseph demonstrates emotional maturity as well because he's in a place to have way more than enough power to just zap his brothers, to put them in their place, to exact every ounce of revenge that they so richly deserve. And if you read Genesis chapters 42 to 45, uh, you do see that Joseph has a bit of fun messing with his brothers during this long story of his eventual revealing of his identity to them. 
But overall, he's very kind and very gracious. He's forgiving. He's willing to view his brothers as also being in the hands of God, as people who were caught up in much, much more than they realized themselves. Joseph is a non-anxious presence in the midst of famine-fueled fear, in the midst of brothers freaking out and assuming that they're done for, and when he's given a wealth of power that could easily have gone to his head. Joseph recognizes the God he serves is a God of good intentions, and Joseph recognizes his own role by the mercy of God to at times be a conduit, a pipeline for the fulfillment of those good intentions, a conduit for those good plans of God to flow through. Because Joseph knows it was no accident by any means that he was where he was. He realizes that God had been moving often behind the scenes all along to bring about God's plans to fruition. Joseph looked at his story and recognized many but God moments along the way. He understood his own role and responsibility in then aligning his own life with God's good plans. Joseph understood, he firmly believed, that to be a willing and compliant part of God's unfolding plans is to be caught up in something truly beautiful and powerful. We see demonstrated in the life of Joseph here that even though Joseph lived about 1,700 years before the Apostle Paul, Joseph already deeply believed what Paul wrote about in his letter to the Romans, that letter that was read just a few moments ago, where Paul insists in Romans 8 that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Last night as the staff was here, um, dealing with the, the watery aftermath. We had some communications to make and texts to send out so people knew what was going on. Uh, and one of the church leaders texted me back, actually, this verse, that God was going to work for God's good in this. And I said, interesting, that's, that's one of tomorrow's verses. I wonder what God is up to. Paul insists that God is always up to something good. It's what God does. It's who God is. We see this thread of God's innate goodness, his power, the goodness of his intentions all through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, at the time of Joseph, we know that most of what had been revealed in the Bible, all the stories of God's goodness and faithfulness and good intentions hadn't yet happened, but Joseph already had seen enough heard enough, experienced enough to trust God, that God was up to good in and through his life. When life gets rough, when things get a bit crazy, these are incredibly encouraging words that Paul writes for the church in Rome and for us. Sometimes words like this will be all that we have to cling to, Sometimes they give us deep reassurance. It's going to be okay. God is up to something good. Last night as our pastors gathered, we began to share these words of encouragement with each other. It's like, but God's going to do something good through this. 
And we're excited to see how that unfolds. There'll be times in our life when uh, things are more serious than a ceiling that falls down and water flows in and things that insurance can take care of will eventually be handled down the road. There are times in our life when we suffer deep loss and we cry out to God for those but God moments and we cling to this promise that somehow, some way, he is up to good in our lives. It can be a real challenge to our faith. We can see our faith grow when maybe over time it reaches a turning point where we move from a place of saying, I'm going to trust in God as long as I can see God moving on my behalf. And we can move from there and slowly turn to a place of saying, I trust in the goodness of God. So I'm going to go looking for it and trusting in it, even when I don't see it. It's not necessarily a switch, an on-off switch in our life of faith. Sometimes we have to keep revisiting that challenge and that question. Do we trust in the goodness and mercy of God? Paul's flat-out assertion to the Roman Christians about God's faithful working for good in the lives of those whom he calls to himself can inspire us, can reassure us. Joseph's story and stories like his in Scripture can inspire us. But as we are encouraged by verses like this and by stories like Joseph's in the Bible, I want to also add a word of caution this morning. When someone is going through a really tough time, someone with really good intentions might quote this verse, Romans 8.28, to them, or, or quote it at them hoping it will be uh, something helpful. You know, they might be told, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. God's at work for good. It's kind of a Christian version of cheer up, look on the bright side. Or at least that's how it can feel sometimes. Those words that may be intended to encourage may be helpful or they may not. Paul wrote Romans 8.28, but he also wrote in the same letter in Romans 12.15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Come alongside them, sit with them. In Galatians 6, Paul wrote, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's different than calling something not a burden. Joseph eventually came to the place in his life when he could look back in retrospect and connect the dots and see that God had always been at work. When he came to his brothers, he said, God intended this for good. But I wonder how Joseph felt after being thrown into the pit by his brothers. Their original plan was just to throw him in a pit and let him starve to death. Plan B was to pull him out of the pit and sell him as a slave wonder how Joseph felt about that. I wonder how Joseph felt when he was unfairly accused of a heinous crime thrown into prison. How he felt when he thought he had an opportunity to be redeemed, but the cupbearer whom he had helped restore to 
Pharaoh's household forgot about him. And so Joseph languished in prison even longer. We don't know what Joseph's thoughts and prayers were in those moments. All we know is that Joseph eventually reached a place to be able to look back and see what God had been up to. As we seek to comfort those whom we care about, it may take them some time to get to that place. And so if we actually sit with someone who's going through a horrible time, if we mourn with them, if we help carry their burdens, if we listen to them, we demonstrate genuine love and care. And in a way, I think we also demonstrate that we have a big enough faith in God to let God reveal to that person what God chooses to reveal and impress upon their hearts. If we trust in God, we may not feel that, that impatient urgency for our friend to, to get over it and move on, to understand that it should be okay. When we're going through those moments ourselves, we find in scriptures not only words of encouragement, but psalms of lament that can help give us words to pour out our hearts to God, to cry out to him in our pain and brokenness. We find examples of people all through the Bible being really honest with God, crying out in their pain, asking for God to do something. And those words can be helpful and encouraging as well. In the Bible, we also do find stories like Joseph's that might encourage us, that might inspire us. When everything we see around us feels like a pit, a slave caravan, a prison cell. And we can be encouraged by each other's but God's stories as well as we share stories of God's faithfulness in our lives as an encouragement to those who right now have trouble seeing that in their own. We can remind ourselves and our friends that God is still good, that God is still at work, that our God of good intentions is the same God of Joseph, of David, of Mary, of Paul. He's the God of our friends alongside our journey of life and faith with us. He's the God of all who call out to him. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving, good, and powerful God, we thank you, we praise you this morning as the one God who can be trusted. God, would you strengthen our faith when it's rattled by unexpected and unwelcome twists and turns in our lives? Help us to look for you, for evidence of your goodness, even in those twists, and would you strengthen our faith in those moments when we can't yet see you, when we can't yet understand what's happening to us or to those whom we care about. Thank you that you hear our cries of help and our shouts of praise. God, make us ready to be vessels, to be conduits of your goodness and faithfulness to the people around us as you work through us to bring about good in the lives of others. God, we praise you this morning. We love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.